Hello and welcome to this, the latest Toby International podcast. My name is Ed Dorrell, I'm Head of Content here at Toby, and I'm joined in our studio in London by uh, Graham Watts, who is Director of Professional Learning at the Association of International Schools in Africa. Say hello, Graham. Hello, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Good, very good, thank you. So Graham works across multiple fields, but always working with international schools in Africa and the challenges and the joy of learning that takes place in that amazing continent. I thought it'd be really interesting to sit down and talk to Graham about his work and the work that goes on in the schools that he works with. So start, let's start at the very start, Graham. Can you tell me how you came to be doing what is essentially quite an unusual job? Mm, yeah, it is. It, it's a... Uh... Uh, a unique opportunity. Um, so I was just working out, actually, that I qualified as a teacher here in the UK 27 years ago um, and uh, loved classroom teaching for, gosh, I think in the, for nine years I taught in schools in the UK, worked my way up to be head of department and all those types of things. What did you teach? I taught history here okay. in the UK. Um, but I had always wanted to travel and teach. That, that to be honest, had been part of my motivation for going into teaching. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but I don't speak any languages other than English, and on, on some days my English is a little bit ropey. So <laughs> we'll um, see today. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. Uh, so I knew I had to go somewhere English speaking. Um, uh, and actually, I went to see my head of school uh, and said, "Look, I'm I'm resigning, and I'm going to spend two years traveling the world and travel and teach and just see what's happening." <laughs> Uh, and he gave me an unpaid sabbatical. Um, Which was um, nice. Very nice, yeah. I headed off to Australia and New Zealand and fell in love with New Zealand. I, I taught over there in, in more, well, was in more of a leadership role, really. Um, and that began to move me into not just working with students, but also looking at the professional development of, of my, my colleagues, my peers. Um, I came back to the UK after five years um, and worked as a consultant in a school uh, in special measures. And a lot of my time was spent working with teachers to develop their competencies. Mm. Um, and then just through a kind of bizarre twist of being in the right place at the right time, um, I was introduced to the American actress Goldie Hawn. Who, <laughs> as uh, one does. As one does, yeah. Um, and she was talking about her children's well-being charity uh, and the curriculum they have called Mind Up. And I said, if ever you'd love to pilot this in the UK, I'd be really happy to, to do that. I did. I uh, worked with her to set up a, a charity here in the UK, the Goldie Horn Foundation, and then that led into a global role. Um, and really, once I had the passion to be working in an international capacity, um, that I, I found I had found my, my place, I'd found my people, I'd found kind of the, my niche. <laughs> uh, and after five years of working at the Goldie Horn Foundation, I then, in some ways... Um, refined rather than working across many continents I decided I'd be interested in working in one particular area and having ongoing relationships and, and commitments yeah. to schools uh, so that led me to this role in um, uh, this role in uh, the Association of International Schools in in Africa and I have been there uh, five years now so tell me a little about the work of ASA, ASA. yeah ASA um, so ASA celebrated its 50th anniversary last year. Not bad going? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Um, it is a um, not-for-profit, it's actually an NGO registered in, in the States, charity registered in the States. Uh, we're partly funded by the US State Department, um, and we have about 80 international schools okay. um, from as far north as uh, Casablanca to, um, to the southernmost tip of 
Cape Town. Right. Wow. Um, so a, a range of schools. Some of them are large by um, African international school standards. Uh, might have a thousand students. Okay. Our smallest, I think, has about seventeen. Wow. Tiny, tiny. Yeah, yeah, and probably the average size is between two hundred and fifty and four hundred in, in in these international schools. So they tend to be smaller than some of the international schools in other parts of yeah, the world. Which can be vast. Can yeah, be vast. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and quite a few of our schools started life off uh, as American embassy schools, okay. and then became American international schools. We also have British schools. We have some schools that are um, truly global and don't uh, connect with any particular tradition. Um, and of course, there's a growing number of um, independent schools in, in Africa that are embracing international mindedness and global mindedness sure, and, and are heading in the direction of becoming um, international or accredited international schools. So it, it'd be very easy to say, so what are the problems uh, facing international schools and what are the challenges of facing international schools in Africa? But because, I mean, it's such a diverse continent, right? Mm. Are, are there any commonalities? If you were to go to your conference, you, you had one in Cape Town, I think, in November, and say, so what are the problems, chaps? Would, would there be things that they'd all say? Um, well, just to flip your question a little bit, I would say that there are many opportunities for our schools, but you are asking specifically about the challenges. I would say there are some common challenges. Um, and, you know, these are probably common to international schools the world over. Sure. Um, the first one that comes to mind is recruitment. Yeah. Getting good people in, uh, in your school at the right time um, is a challenge, as is the teacher pipeline. Um, who are going to be the, these these fantastic people coming into future international mm-hmm. schools? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's that that can be an issue for for many of our schools in different parts of the continent. Sure. Um, and and some of the international schools are now working on teacher pipelines, so working closely with um, host nation nationals who are qualified teachers in 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 their country. Um, working with them to help them understand what it means to to be a practitioner in an international school context. So there are schools, presumably in in Africa, where most of the teaching workforce would be um, British or Western European or Anglophone, um, and presumably there are other schools which are very different. Yeah, yeah, and actually, you've 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 kind of hit the nail on the head there because one of the one of the features of our schools is is how diverse they are. Mm-hmm. Some of the, as you said, some of the, the schools will be mostly international hire teachers, mm-hmm. and will have international hire school nurses, um, counselors, librarians. Mm-hmm. Other schools will be mostly host nation nationals, and and the same with the student population. In some of our schools, if there are a lot of um, international. Um, hires in the city if there's a big UN office or a World Bank office or there's a major um, international company there um, that means the, the the student population will be truly diverse and, and global in other settings um, 90% of the students maybe more will be host nation nationals yes. from that uh, from that country and one of the things that um, comes up time and again when you speak to international leaders um, is the issue of retention of staff and by extension, um, professional development, which is obviously an area that you're very interested in. Um, some places, say, in the Middle East will hold big conferences for international school teachers in the UAE, and they'll all flock. Um, I, I'm guessing that in Africa that is less common and you're dealing with more remote learning. Yes. 
Uh, yes, uh, and part of the reality for that, and this is something I didn't appreciate until I was I was working uh, in Africa, is that, that there is no Ryanair, that there's no EasyJet. Yes. Uh, Travelling within the continent of Africa is very expensive, um, and sometimes um, it sometimes you have to fly out of the continent just to go to the the country that is a thousand miles away, or, or the country that's um, two countries away from you. Yeah. Um, uh, and there aren't the same number of flights as we have in Europe. So quite often there may be a stopover, um, there'll be a hotel. So it can take a couple of days to to get to an event. Mm-hmm. Um, so we tend to, we've moved really from having a large annual conference to having, um, we have uh, about 25 weekend institutes uh, that take place in the school. Um, yeah. And those tend to service the regional needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those will be two days on a particular aspect of teaching and learning or if I've got one coming up soon for school nurses, which oh, is well, very okay. um, apropos of what's going on in the world right now. Uh, and that tends to service the local um, uh, needs in, in that country and the countries around it. Uh, and sometimes we will then replicate that event. So rather than expecting all the teachers to get up and move or all the counsellors or human resource managers, we just move the facilitator from one part of, uh, of the continent to, to, the, yeah. to the other. And of course, the other aspect of professional learning is um, online learning. Um, uh, and I, I mean, to be honest with you, I thought five years ago that I would be moving more of our work online. Okay. Um, I have learned two things, really. Firstly, for online learning to have traction, so by that I mean there to be uh, some people left at the end of the course uh, <laughs> compared to the people who yeah. registered, they have to have met so uh, what I've learned is there needs to be a face-to-face component. Oh, interesting. Usually at the start, um, and then the learning switches to online learning. So the, really that's a blended learning, professional learning concept. Yep. Um, and that works quite well. Our conference is in November, so we'll, we'll get the people together. They'll have a face-to-face day together on whatever aspect of learning they're, they're exploring. Then they'll move into webinars and coaching and, and work together online for the, for the rest of the year. Um, one of the hesitations I have about online learning is some of the, in some parts of Africa and some of the nations that that we have schools in, there can be a real issue with connectivity. I can imagine. So having something that is synchronous, um, where everybody needs to be online at the same time, can be problematic. And what tends to happen, it's the same schools that are hit time after time after time. So when I am organising online learning, there needs to be an asynchronous component. So the schools that can't get online at two o'clock on a Tuesday can catch up or, I mean, one way around we had was actually asking them to video themselves, asking their questions. I then downloaded the video, sent it to the facilitator. She recorded herself answering the questions and we we sent it back um, as a way around some of the um, connectivity issues in in parts of of the continent of Africa. Um, I'm I'm really interested in in the way, so I'm touching on that because you're talking about innovation and and overcoming challenges. I'm really interested in the way that um, international schools, uh, when when they're at their best, can use their circumstances to really truly innovate in a way that schools in domestic um, uh, systems, not just in the UK, but probably anywhere in the world, Mm -hmm. they just can't. Presumably, when you, on your travels around uh, around Africa, you see some amazing work. Absolutely, and I think what you what you've hit on uh, you, you, what you've um, the you've hit on the head there. There are probably three things that um, 
international higher teachers in our international schools will say say to me keeps them in international schools. One is autonomy, the other is the freedom to innovate, and the other one is the cultural experience of, of working in a in a country uh, in, in Africa. Um, so that ability to innovate, I think, is part of the reason people move into international schools yeah. and part of the reason they stay there. So certainly in in, in our international schools. Um, I see some very interesting work along the um, uh, along the the lines of personalising learning. Mm-hmm. Often these classes will have smaller that will be have small sizes. Yeah, the sure. schools will have smaller sizes. So there's some very interesting work about developing um, students' higher order thinking, developing student agency, greater independence amongst students, to, so that students can personalise their own learning rather than. Uh, thinking that the teacher's got to come up with 30 different lesson plans, one for each of the students yeah. in, in the class. Um, a lot of really interesting work around uh, intercultural competence. Um, okay. What does that mean? So kind of moving from um, international mindedness, which is, you know, the flags and food and yeah. you know, fashions of, of different countries. Yeah, to, to kind of looking at um, or modelling um, problem solving and saying, well, I'm coming at it from this perspective and this is what's shaping my thinking. Um, so teaching the um, teaching the, the kids the skill of, of multiple perspective taking, so uh, and trying to unpack why um, why we can interpret situations in different ways and why uh, problem solving and decision making really needs to bring in a diverse range of people and to understand what it is that's shaping their um, their solution or the decision that they are advocating. Um, and when I see that happening in international schools, I often think this would be just as useful for, for grown-ups in, yeah. in the workplace <laughs> to understand why it is... Um, yeah, we could probably do it to someone else. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and the importance of having people who are different talking about how you can solve a problem because yeah. people bring their different um, interpretations, their cognitive frameworks, their different paradigms yeah. uh, towards problem-solving. I, I find that fascinating. Something that has really stood out to me and something I hadn't actually heard of until five years ago when I, I came to work in, in Africa um, is service learning. Yeah, you mentioned this to me the other day and I'd never heard of it either. So can you tell us a bit more about it? So yeah, so it, I guess once upon a time we, you know, we, we used to ask kids to reach out to the community and perhaps that was doing a Christmas party for people who live in, uh, in the old people's home. Yeah. If you are working in countries, or if you're studying countries where there is very significant ongoing need, then we need to think about how we can, from our quite privileged background, how we can offer ongoing service to the community around us, but also how we can learn from and with the local community going on around us. Um, So a lot of the schools uh, in our association, in ASA, have um, adopted a service learning curriculum. So that tends to mean there is, um, well, it usually starts with the students identifying a project to work on in the community. And that means going out, often talking to children in local schools. It could be um, talking to uh, adults. It could be talking to um, policymakers or um, uh, locally elected individuals to try to identify a problem that this year eight class, year 12 class could work on. So it's about, first of all, reaching a, uh, an understanding of a problem that is realistic, that they can work on in the course yeah. of a year, and then investigating that problem 
spans all aspects of the curriculum. So the, the maths will be exploring perhaps the budgeting. In English, they'll be looking at persuasive writing and uh, perhaps marketing materials. In um, uh, science, they might be looking at um, some of the... Uh, I don't know, they might need to do some experiments. They might need to think about health and safety clothing or, or something, depending on what they're working on. Um, so it becomes... It becomes something that is of educational value to the, to the kids. It's something that becomes part of the planned curriculum. Um, and obviously they work towards delivering this for the, for the local community. Give me an example. So a really nice example I saw recently in West Africa was um, in, a, in a, a Francophone West African country. A lot of the children in local schools wanted to improve their English accent because they were taught English and they could read English in the textbooks, but they didn't have much access to, pra- to practicing their English language. Yeah. So um, the, the kids in the international school developed an app. Now, I don't know how you, you develop give them a name an check. Sorry? Give them a name check. What's the um, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it will come back to me. We'll, we'll edit that um, out. We'll edit that And they had... Uh, so the kids developed an app, which is fantastic. I wouldn't know where to begin. With the kids recording certain words and vowel sounds... So the kids in the local community on their um, on their phones or on the computer in the school, they could practice their vocabulary. Wow. And in return, the kids from the local school came in and taught some lessons to the kids in the international school, teaching them their um, their national language. Not not French. Yeah, so African language. Um, so that was a really nice example of looking at something that's tangible because these kids have, you know, they have a lot going on. So it's got to be something they can deliver in the course of a year and it needs to be sustainable. Uh, You know, as soon as the the project finishes, if it it comes to an end, then it's it's not really going to make an impact. But something like developing an app, that's going to run for as long as kids don't want to to download the app. Wonderful. It sounds like an amazing project. Burkina Faso. Burkina Faso. There you are. That was it. Wow. Phew. Got there in the end. Um... So one of the things that touches upon, which I think is very, very interesting, is that tension between, you find in international schools, between being global, being proud of being internationalist in your outlook, but also being embedded in your local community. And that helps to overcome some of those problems. Yeah, I think so. It's about developing an appreciation of the country and the community that you are living in. It's about talking to to your peers, to... Uh, well, we often encourage kids to talk to locally elected officials as well to, to understand how democracy operates in, in, in various places. Um, so it's about a kind of a, a, a cultural understanding mm. of where they are working, but also recognising that they have a responsibility to, to share and to contribute because we are guests in, yeah. in a host nation. Um, and when there is a, a significant ongoing need, then we should be addressing that we shouldn't we shouldn't be closing the gates and not looking beyond the the school walls um and in terms of being global-minded i to my mind that's just a lovely example of um applying global-mindedness or international-mindedness whatever one chooses to call it because the kids are often you know in the school perhaps two years three years maybe longer if we add up those experiences across, uh, across the course of their, their schooling, I think that's a fantastic range of opportunities to, to experience life in another country, but more importantly, to contribute something towards the host nation that they find themselves in. I can't think of a more upbeat way of finishing off this latest Tez International podcast. Um, thank you so much for joining me, Graham. My pleasure. And thank you for listening.